So very good to see those of you that were able to come out this morning. For those of you that are worshiping with us at home, I, I pray that you would um, that you would drown out the the distractions. We would encourage you. We're gonna we're gonna have a time of special prayer at the end of this service. Once I'm once I've concluded our uh, our sermon, and so I would encourage you folks at home, particularly, to be uh, be commenting in on Facebook specific prayer requests you have. It's a weird time. This is a weird time, and I and I told you last week. I, I asked you to just chill out. Just take a deep breath and chill out. Yes, I recognize that this is now called a pandemic. And no, I'm not stupid. I've got a wife. I've got three little girls. I know the financial ramifications of shutting down businesses and canceling, canceling events. But dear friends, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Your sovereign Father has brought us to this point and to whatever lies ahead. Nothing has changed. Whatever was true in His Word a month ago or a year ago or two weeks ago is still true today. As the psalmist said, His Word is fixed in the heavens. It does not move. It does not change. It is not on a whim. It is not tied to our emotions. It isn't tied to a virus. It isn't tied to the economy. It isn't tied to how many people sit in this room. It isn't tied to you having to worship at home. God's word doesn't change. Nothing has changed. Whatever God called you to last week, he continues to call you to that today. If you pledge to follow his word yesterday, a week ago, a month ago, it hasn't changed. Whatever a life of love and service and honor and obedience looked like a month ago, it still looks like that today. Do you think that God wrote this word not knowing that this would happen? Do you think that he wrote this word not knowing that there would be pandemics and freakouts and viruses? Dear friends, may we not think so little of our Savior. He led us here. And he gave us in his word the, the way of holy living. The way of life, all life, at all times, no matter how the world around us changes, he's given us the way of life, so let's cling to that. Let's not allow our, our emotions to rule, because your heart's a liar. Your heart is deceptive. Let's not allow the words of wisdom from the unsaved to rule. Your father knows all, and he's given you a spirit of discernment. If there's ever been a time to cling to his word, it's now, is it not? So we cling to his word and we say, what does this look like? What does this look like? What does a holy life look like in the middle of this, whatever this is? I, make, I made last week one thing perfectly clear to you, and I make that same statement to you today. This does not mean that this isn't going to be costly. That does not mean that we are not going to suffer. Dear friends, many of you are already suffering. Many of you have already paid a cost, and it's only going to get worse. It's only going to get harder. The suffering's only going to increase. We don't allow people to lie to us and tell us that somehow God has promised to shield us from this. That somehow God has promised that if we would just have enough faith or if we would just come into this church or if we would just say this right prayer, that we're never going to pay any kind of cost for this thing and that there's never going to be any suffering to come upon us. There is. There's going to be real suffering. 
But beloved, you need to understand that this virus is just one in a long line of things that have come after humanity. It's a result of living in a fallen world. Time after time after time, events just like this have come. We don't know what the depth of this is going to look like. We don't know what the pain from this is going to look like. But do you think we're unique? Do you think we're the first generation to face down a scary virus? Let me tell you. Smallpox hit the Roman Empire in the 2nd century. 10 million people died. The plague hit Europe and Western Africa in the 6th century. 50 million people died. That was nearly half their population. Black Death hit Europe and Asia in the 14th century. By best estimates, 200 million people died. The, uh, the Persian plague in the 18th century, more than 2 million died. The 19th century, cholera killed more than a million people in Russia. Later that same century, a million people died from the flu. In the 20th century, encephalitis, uh, the bubonic plague, the Asian flu, the Hong Kong flu. Just 10 years ago, do you remember that the flu killed half a million people? We're not special. This virus isn't special. It's a result of living in a fallen world, in a world that groans for the return of our Savior. Sin and sickness and death are promised to come. Just add coronavirus to the end of the list. Just one more way that you might die. But dear friends, you're already dead. Don't you see? You've been crucified with Christ, therefore you no longer live. The life you live in the flesh, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. You're already dead. So you don't have to fear how you really die. You don't have to fear whether death comes at 99 years old, alone in your bed, or whether it comes from some virus, or whether it comes from the nuclear war, whatever it is. When death comes, may it find us busy about our Father's work no matter what the form. May we be busy loving and living and serving and praising and worshiping instead of flinching all the time, wondering if it's going to be a bus that hits us or a virus. Dear friends, nothing has changed, don't you see? There's nothing that death holds over us. When you count yourself as dead, when you count everything in this world as loss compared to the surpassing wealth of knowing God, the worth of knowing Christ, of walking with Him, then there's nothing we have to fear in this. You'll notice that as I read through that list of, of things that came after humanity, of illnesses and plagues and sickness and all the rest, there was never a moment throughout all that time that God sent a new messenger and said, okay, time out, let's hit pause on this over here. New plan, it's freak out time. New plan, it's time to hoard. New, time, new plan, it's time to abandon the call that I've called you to. Never. Throughout all those, and as a matter of fact, what you would find is that through every single one of these circumstances, the true church rose. The true church stood up and showed what the children of God are called to do over and over and over again. Dear friends, our Father is refining us. We praise Him in the middle of this because we know that He is doing a marvelous work. He's toughening us up. We're so soft. Look at us. Hoarding toilet paper, Germex, staying up at night worried about our 401ks. Good Lord, who are we? Are we cowards? Do we believe that our Father has lost control? He's doing a work right now. He is refining you. He is refining me. And it's not, it's not always a painless enterprise to be refined, to walk through fire. But we praise him in the middle of this because we trust that he's good. Dear friends, I walked up this morning with an excitement. 
is I got out of my truck and I looked around and the world was dead. I said, praise you, Father, you're doing a work. Because I, I tend to not hear them in the normalcy, right? When things are normal, when the world is loud, I don't hear them as well. I just go about my pattern. I just go about the normal things. Go about hoarding stuff. No, I don't hoard toilet paper, but I hold, hoard other stuff. Accumulating wealth for myself. All this stuff that's going to be eaten up by moths or fire or flame or whatever it is. Keep hoarding all this stuff. Instead of storing up treasures in heaven. Instead of truly trusting him. So I praise him. I praise him for the quiet streets. I praise him that he's promised us that he's working this for good. I praise him that we can stand firm on his word today. That his call is still the same, that we will love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul. That we love our neighbors, we love ourselves. That at every moment, we don't have to go back to him and say, okay, now what's the plan? Now what do we do? The plan is always the same. What does love demand of me? What is the gospel of Jesus Christ, love for him and love for my neighbor, what does it demand of me in this very moment? And whatever that is, we do. We don't have to go running back to him and asking him. We don't have to act as if he's, he's unveiling his plan for us. He's given it to us. And it doesn't change no matter what form death comes. Dear friends, we stood in this place during the good times. And we've pledged that we trust that our Father is working all things for our good and his glory. Will we live it in the bad times? It's easy to say when we're fat and happy. It's easy to say when oil's at 80 bucks a barrel. But will you live it today? You put your lives where your mouth is. And will you live like people that have no fear of anything this world can hold against us? Dear friends, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. And I don't know what tomorrow's going to look like. I stood in this pulpit two weeks ago, maybe it was three weeks ago, and I told you that for many of us in this room, I didn't know it was going to be all of us, I said, but that for some of you in this room, you are riding high today, and tomorrow you will be laid low. God said, how about all of you? How about all of you, preacher man? You're not exempt. He's doing a thing. We get to be a part of the thing that he's doing. Dear friends, I'm jacked up. Praise him. Praise him for what he's doing in this. In, 50, in 587 B.C., right before Jerusalem fell, the, uh, the Babylonians had come and they had, they had surrounded the city and they had just cut off the supplies. And for 18 months, this siege lasted. And the, the people there, they were just, they were decimated to the point that they were, they were struggling to get any food in there and so they turned to cannibalism. They, they, were, they were eating their kinsmen. They were, they were eating their dad in order just to try and, try and stay alive. And eventually the siege came, and the, and the city was, was wiped out, and the people, were, the people were all taken off into captivity. In the middle of that, listen to God's word in Jeremiah 29, 11. You're right. You're okay, you're okay. So in the middle of all this pain and all this death and all this suffering, listen to the words of Jeremiah 29:11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. 
Dear friends, so many believers have corrupted this verse in the meaning that you will never suffer, in the meaning that you will never die, in the meaning that there will never be any pain. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that in the middle of pain, in the middle of suffering, in the middle of death, your heavenly Father is screaming out from above, I am for you. And all that I am, I am for you. I am refining you. I am disciplining you. I am preparing you. I am building a kingdom. I am showing you who my true children are. I am showing you who the true church is. That while other people's love grows cold, the true church will stand up. That's what this verse means. That your heavenly Father, no matter what the world around us looks like, that your heavenly Father is declaring for above, I am for you. And dear friends, he's still for us. He's still for us because nothing has changed. In the middle of this, we trust that he's for us. So that if we can stand and we truly believe that our Father is the creators of the heavens and the earth, and we truly believe that he is for us, and we truly believe that he is working at work for his glory and for our good, then we have nothing to fear. That we could stand in the face of a virus and we could say, this is not evil. This is not meant to destroy us. This is the loving hand of our good, good Father, and he is doing a good work. This good work isn't fun. This good work can be scary at times. But dear friends, at all times, we stand in that promise. And I need you to understand that the opposite of standing in that promise, the opposite of glorifying God's holy name, is not cursing his name. It's living in fear. It's living in panic because that's what we do. We're a people who loves to panic. When things go haywire... We begin to doubt the goodness of God, or perhaps we doubt that he's truly for us, or perhaps we doubt that he really has it within himself to control all things at all times. No matter what the driver, we're a people who panics whenever destruction comes, whenever pain comes, whenever sorrow comes. That's the shame in us being so stinking soft. That's the shame in us being so rich. We haven't suffered in so long that we've begun to doubt the goodness of our Father. We've begun to doubt the abilities of our Father, the wealth of our Father, and so over and over again, he calls us, be strong, be courageous. It happened to the Israelites, it happened to us, that we're not strong and we're not courageous. You remember what happened is Moses led the people to the promised land. What did they do? They saw the giants and they turned away. Either they doubted the goodness of God or they doubted his ability, one or the other. And all down through the generation, there have been times in my life, there have been times in yours when we've just doubted his goodness. Dear friends, let this not be one of those times. May we stand strong, may we stand courageous in the promise. Do you know why people are hoarding toilet paper? Sure, some of it's fear, but ultimately it's a longing for control. Something I can control. It's the same reason that a man will, will be terrified at the thought of getting on a plane, but he has no problem driving 70 miles an hour down a two-lane highway, checking his text, and steering with his knee. We love the illusion of control dear friends it's exactly that it's an illusion you don't control squat and this virus has done us a favor by reminding us of exactly that it's done us the favor of reminding us that you don't control anything it is only in god that you move and live and breathe you don't sustain yourself you don't hold yourself up so that when something like this hits us that we're reminded of the proverbs 16 9 the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. That we can sit around and we can talk about the barns that we're going to build and the storehouses that we're going to fill. And we can talk about our plans for tomorrow. And God laughs. He laughs. He says, you people have no control over anything. You are only there because I have chosen to allow you to be there. And he reminds us of that when something like a virus hits. 
You do remember that the Israelites, the only way they were able to eat was because of the hand of their father. Day after day after day, he gave them our daily provisions. And I'm afraid that what's happened is because we've got pantries full of mac and cheese, because we've got a little bit, little, 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 little bit of money in our 401k, because we've got an insurance card in our wallet, we somehow think that we're providing ourselves. We think that we're sustaining ourselves. Dear friends, it's not true. And so what he's done by allowing this thing is he's reminded us that we're in control of nothing. So we need to embrace that opportunity because the world's now figuring it out too. The world's figuring it out as well so that we can stand before them with this, this, this strange confidence, this kind of confidence that makes them very unsettled. What are you so confident about? We can stand before them with a the strange confidence that says, my daddy owns it all and he is good and he is for me. And I have nothing to fear in the face of this. And I was never in control. So welcome to the club. Now that you know that you're not in control, welcome to the club. Let me show you what this life looks like. Let me take you to the one that is sovereign. Let me take you to the one that does have all providence. Let me take you to the one that has endless supply. Let me introduce you to my daddy. He has it all. We take advantage of this opportunity to scream it to the mountaintops. There are times when the world can't hear us. Because they're too fat, they're too rich, they're too happy. They can hear us today, friends. We've got opportunity today as we lay down our lives and we show them. We're not storing things for tomorrow. We don't know that there is a tomorrow. We'll give now. We're not giving from an abundance. We're giving from a point of poverty, trusting that our Father will give us what we need, trusting that our Father has an endless supply, and trusting that even if we starve in our homes, He is good. And at the end of this life, as we watch our ribs poke through and we breathe our last breath, we go into glory with Him. Because we have run the race, we have finished well, we have finished strong. I understand it's early to be talking about starving, right? There's not a one of you that had to forego a meal this morning. But we don't know what this looks like. And I'm not going to wait until things get really, really bad to call you to this. I've been trying to do this for 18 months. Have I not? Suffering comes. Pain comes. Will you praise him in it? Will you glorify him in it? Will you show the love of Christ to your neighbor that doesn't deserve it? That wouldn't share a square of toilet paper with you? Would you give them from your tiny rations? Would you do it? That's what it looks like to glorify God. That's what God demands. That's what love demands in the middle of this. So over the last two weeks, that was a long intro, I know. It was on your mind. You weren't going to listen to anything else I had to say until we covered it. Leanne, is anybody talking to us on Facebook? Y'all talk. I want to know you're there. I know, they've all slept in. <laughs> hey, get dressed too. Don't watch in your pajamas. We all had to tie our shoes. Get dressed and participate. So two weeks ago, or, or for the last two weeks, we've been, we've been covering basically a 24-hour period in the life of Christ. We've been, we've been covering this period of, of, of 24 hours that... They began with Jesus there in the synagogue preaching the gospel. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe. He was preaching himself. And as he was there, a man possessed with a, with a demon couldn't help but cry out. And as he lashes out against Christ, all he has to do is utter a word and the demon flees. A reminder that Jesus, the Son of God, is sovereign over all, authority over all, even the demons. Even the unclean spirits must obey whenever he utters a word. And then you'll remember, after that service was over, as they headed home, they went to Simon Peter's house, where his mother-in-law lay ill, and they asked him, they interceded 
on, on her behalf, and they said, Jesus, would you do something for her? We know who you are. We've seen what you have done. Could you do something for her, please? And as he reaches out his hand, he takes her, he says a word, he calls her up, and immediately she's healed, 100% healed, to the point that she immediately goes about serving them. And I realized at the conclusion of last week's service that perhaps I'd missed an opportunity there to talk to you about the value of basic Christian service. Alistair Begg, I was reading some of his commentary on these verses, and he said that we do well not to underestimate the glory that God can receive from something as seemingly ordinary as a couple of hard-boiled eggs and a perfectly toasted piece of bread. That God can be glorified in the simple things. That God can be just as glorified in a cold drink of water as he can in calming the seas. That God can be glorified in a hug, a word of encouragement, the washing of feet, just as he can the chasing out of demons and the healing of a, a woman that has a high fever. That even in those small opportunities, even in those, just, those tiny instances of what we would just call being an ordinary, decent human, God can be glorified in those. We're going to see those opportunities increase as the days go on. Those opportunities to do things that you may just count as being a good neighbor, but when done for the sake of Christ... When done in the name of Christ for the sake of his kingdom, they can bring God incredible glory. I think I missed maybe that opportunity last week. But then once the sun went down, what we saw was that all of the town brought their sick and those that were oppressed by demons, and they all came. The scripture tells us that he healed them all, that he healed them all, again showing that not only does he have power over the spiritual world, but over the, the physical world as well. Also making clear to us that our Father who has made us both flesh and spirit, that he cares for both. Also pointing us forward to the resurrection, pointing us forward to that promise that we won't just go and float around in heaven as disembodied spirits, that there will come a time when these very bodies. I, I got the opportunity to go to Sweet Miss Polly's house um, Friday afternoon after she passed away. And, uh, boy, she looked pretty. She had her makeup on and, and, um, and, uh, she looked, she looked good. She looked good. But it was encouraging to me to be reminded that someday God was going to take that very same body that will turn to dust, and he was going to make it new. He was going to make it perfect. It's an encouragement for me. I pray it's an encouragement for you. But we see that in the life of Jesus. But he was doing more than that. It was more than just temporary healing because all these people would get sick again. It was more than just the casting out of a demon because there's no guarantee that another demon wouldn't come back and bring his buddies with him. What he was doing was he was validating his message. He was proving his identity. He was pointing people towards the truth of the gospel that he had been proclaiming for all this time. So go ahead and stand to your feet now as we return to Mark's gospel. We're in the first chapter of Mark's gospel, verses 35 through 39. And arising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were, with, who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next town that I may preach there also, for this is why I came out. And he went through all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. All God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my Savior? Would you make this book live to me? It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So the next morning, it says the next morning. So you'll remember that 
The day before that was the Sabbath. That's why Jesus was in the synagogue. And then you'll recall that at sundown, the next day began. So the Sabbath is a Saturday. Sundown began Sunday. And now this is early the next morning. It says here early the next morning that he was up. Surely he was exhausted from the day before. You'll, you'll often hear pastors talk about just the exhaustion that hits you on a Monday morning or a Sunday afternoon after you're done. And there really is. It's something that's just hard to explain. There is a spiritual and mental and even physical exhaustion that accompanies preaching the gospel, that accompanies pleading with souls to trust and believe in Jesus Christ. It is an exhausting thing. It's not digging ditches. It's not working a 12-hour shift out in the sun. It's a different kind of exhaustion. It really is hard to explain. But surely, after this day that Jesus has just had, he's exhausted. And while we don't know exactly what it felt like for Jesus to heal these people, what we don't know exactly what it was like, we, we can't have some sympathy with that. You know what it's like when people continually come to you with their burdens. As people continually come to you with their burdens and their sorrows and their hurts and they lay them at your feet and they're asking you for your help, it is exhausting. But we also have an idea of perhaps the physical toll that it took on him. If We're going to get to this chapter in a few weeks, but in well, a few months, maybe a year. But in Mark 5, verse 25 through 30, we read this. There was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather she grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she, for she said, if I touch even his garment, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? So clearly Jesus felt something physically. It says that the power went out for him. Clearly he felt something physical whenever he was healing, and talking about just this one woman. So I, I don't know exactly what it felt like for Jesus at the end of a long day, but he, as a fully man, you've got to remember this, right? That when Jesus came to earth, took humanity upon himself, he became a man just as you and I are a man, and men get tired. Our minds get tired. We know that Jesus underwent the, just a gamut of emotions, and so the, the sorrow for the people that he saw coming to him, perhaps the frustration that he saw and, and many of their lack of faith, and then in addition to that, just the physical toll that it takes to stand there and greet people time after time. And then the toll that it would have taken for this power to go out from him. He would have been exhausted. He would have surely been exhausted. But it says it very early the next day. Mark even tells us that it was still dark out. So this was probably like 4 or 5 in the morning, something like this. Before the sun was even up, that Jesus arose the next morning and then he goes out. It says that he went to a desolate place. The Greek word there is eremos. It's, it's, it's wilderness. It's the same word that we see used when it talks about John the Baptist going out into the wilderness in order to baptize. It's the same word that we see when Jesus goes out into the wilderness to be tempted, that he went out to be alone. He was intentional about this. He wasn't just there in his normal place, that before the sun came up, he left town, he went out of the wilderness so that he could be alone with his father. And it says that there he prayed. Now, it doesn't come as any surprise to us to hear that Jesus prayed. We know that Jesus prayed. We know that Jesus was not only the perfect sacrificial lamb of God, we also know that he was the perfect, he was the perfect picture for us of what this life is meant to look like, what a life in dependence and obedience to God was to look like. But you ever wonder why Jesus prayed? Why in the world would Jesus need to pray? He is God, fully God, eternally God. And we need to recognize that for all eternity, God has existed in this co-equal state of the same matter, the same being, God the Father, 
God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I said matter. He wasn't matter. It, delete that. Of the same substance, of the same being, of the same everything, that he was there. He's co-equal, that they were there in all eternity. But have you ever wondered, what was it that he did before he created? Before he had something to rule over, before there was the heavens, before there was the earth, before there were the angels, before there were the humans, what was God doing? He was loving. He was loving himself. He was existing, and he was loving himself, and they were of one union. They knew, he didn't have to ask the Father what his Father's will was at that moment because they were one. And yet when he left heaven and he came to earth, when he refused to grasp equality with God, when he refused to pick up his own deity, when he refused to act in accordance with his own will or his own power, when in submission to the Father and had a love for humanity, that humanity could be saved, he took the fullness of man upon himself. He placed himself in a position where he was dependent upon hearing from his Father hearing the will of his father, hearing the word of his father, making requests before his father, asking for strength from the day for his father, asking that his needs be met by his father, just as you and I pray. This is what was necessary, and so that he would go out there, he would go out there in the wilderness and he would meet with him. That in his humanity, he needed time alone with his father. This wasn't just a show. This wasn't just an example. That is, being fully man and doing the task that God had called him to do and coming to earth, that he was in great dependence. And this is just so mind-boggling. The idea that he would come and that he wouldn't just pray once or twice. This was his common practice. Luke says this, Luke 5, 16. Jesus often withdrew to the lonely places and he prayed because he needed to pray. How could he know the will of his father if he didn't ask, if he didn't spend time alone with his father? How could he have strength for the day, encouragement for the day, endurance for the day if he didn't ask? How could he bring the needs? How could he intercede on behalf of his people if he didn't go to the Father and ask? Over and over and over again, Jesus was there alone in the early morning hours with the Father. You remember what the temptation was. At the root, the temptation that Satan brought to Jesus' doorstep was this. Would you take that up? Would you pick up your deity? Would you act in your own will? Would you act in your own authority? Would you refuse to submit to the Father? This thing that you did in condescending to come into man, would you undo that now? Would you act upon your own deity? That was, the, that was a temptation. So that every single time we see Jesus kneeling before the Father, he is reaffirming over and over and over again, his will be done. Because you know it had to have been tempting, right? He just had a long day healing people and chasing out demons. And you've got to imagine it sitting there and say, why am I getting up early to do this? I've already come to earth. What else do you want? Why do I have to come to you? Why do I have to submit to your will? Why do I have to ask you for provision? Why do I have to ask you to give me what it is that I need? I'm God just like you're God. It's time I started acting like it. Isn't that what we do? Why do I need to ask you for anything, God? Day after day, why do I have to fall on my knees before you? Why do I have to submit to your will? Why do you give me this crumb of bread? Why don't you give me this little bit for a day? Why don't you give me more so I can stop coming back to you every day? Why don't you give me enough so I can store up some more for the week? That's what's in our heart. Praise God it wasn't in the Son of God's heart. Praise Jesus that he overcame this because this, this temptation that was upon him, it could have destroyed everything at this moment. If he had chosen, you know what, I'm not going to the Father anymore. I'm doing this my way. I'm doing this in my own power. Listen to his words in John 5, 19. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. That this wasn't just a, that this wasn't just a, wasn't a thing that Jesus was forced to do. This wasn't a thing that he did begrudgingly. That this was his priority. That's what we see by the fact that he wakes up early in the morning. And that's something that I've, I've wrestled with for a great deal of my adult life. 
You know, there were those times in my life when I thought, okay, well, Jesus prayed before the sun came up, so surely that's the pattern for my life. Surely I'm called and I've got to get up before the sun comes up, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, whatever it is. I've got to get up before the sun comes up and I've got to pray because that's the only time that holy prayers happen. That's the only time that godly prayers that honor him and it will truly be heard happen. And so I'd wake up, I'd set my alarm, and I'd wake up at 4 in the morning, and I'd go into my living room, and for some reason, I, I kneel when I pray, typically, and I would kneel, and I would put my head in my couch, like down in the cushions, because it was dark there, and it was quiet there. The whole house was already quiet, but I'd, I'd put my head deep down in the couch, and we already had a kid there, so I'd always find goldfish and gummy bears and stuff down in the cushions of the couch, but I would, I would go there before God, and I would be, I would be just, just trying to pray to him, and next thing I knew, I was asleep. And I'd shake my head, and I'd ask his forgiveness, and then I'd go back to praying again. And if I'm being honest, I hated that time. I hated my quiet time. And I, I don't know if it's because I'm too weak, if I'm not faithful enough, I don't know what it is, but I know that getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning and going and getting on my knees before the Father, it, it, it was less than a joy. And we don't do things just because they're less than a joy, but what I found is that I was avoiding my quiet time. I was getting nothing from my quiet time. And so here's where I think that I've, here's where I think that I've landed in this, is, is today my quiet time takes place at 7 o'clock in my back study. What, what, where I think I've landed is that it's not necessarily about the time. I think that it's, it's about the priority. It's that for Jesus getting up at four or five or whatever time it wasn't going off in the winters, it was the first priority in his day. It was the most important part of his day was his time with the Father. For some of you, it may be something different. It may not be four o'clock. It may not be seven o'clock. It may be noontime. It may be evening time. But the question is, is time alone with the Father a priority for you? Are you just not doing it because it's inconvenient? Are you just not doing it because it's not top on your list? Are you truly spending time alone with the Father every day? Is that a priority in your life? I think that's what the most important thing is. Is it so fundamental to your life? Is it as fundamental to your life as eating or getting dressed or brushing your teeth? Is time alone with the Father so important to you that you cannot imagine a day without it? That you can imagine a day that you're not on your knees before your Father asking Him for provision for the day, asking Him to show you His will, asking Him to strengthen you for the challenges ahead? Is that a priority in your life? If you can truly say that it is, and you're praying at noon, or you're praying at 9 o'clock in the evening, if you can truly say that prayer and time alone with the Father is a priority for you, then good. Don't change the time. But let's be honest with ourselves. Is it? What does your prayer life look like? Don't check out on me here. What does your prayer life look like? That the Son of God needed to spend time alone day after day after day with his father. Who are we to think we don't need that? So that's my question for you this morning. Are you spending time with the father? Is it a priority? I'm not letting loose. I'm letting the Holy Spirit work on you right now. Because I sat exactly where you sat. There were times when it meant next to nothing to me my prayer life was a, something to check off a list my prayer life was a thing I did because I thought that's what good Christian little boys were supposed to do there were times when I wandered away from it and it became like going to the gym the first day you sit on your couch and you don't go to the gym you kind of feel guilty the second day you kind of feel good the third day you forgot where the gym was 
Have you spent sincere time with the Father today? What about yesterday? What about the day before? If I hadn't gotten to you yet, dear friends, you're in great peril. Do you really think you can live this life on your own? In your own power? In your own will? In your own ability? What we see here in the life of Jesus is that in submission to the Father and placing himself in a position on his knees before the Father. We don't know Jesus' actual position before God every time he went to him in prayer. But in placing yourself in that posture of obedience and submission to God, you're following after your Savior Jesus Christ. There's a sign in my office. Robert Murray McShane has a quote from him. It says, what a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. If that quote be true, what does it say about who you are? Who are you on your knees before God? So Jesus is there and he's alone. And before the sun comes up, he's, he's there, he's in communion with the Father. Verse 36, and Simon and those who were with him searched for him and they found him and they said to him, everyone is looking for you. So the boys, they wake up and they look around and they go, where's Jesus? This isn't a time to run away. Strike while the iron's hot. All the people are here. Your popularity is just peeking out. Everybody is searching for you. Where is Jesus gone? Why has he run away? And so they come rushing out and they find him. Surely thinking, you know what, if this really is the Messiah, if he really is going to bring the kingdom of God, if he really is going to restore in their minds the fortunes of Israel, doesn't he need all these people? What have you just healed all these people from if it's not to use them? If you're not dependent on them as your army, if you're not dependent upon them as your citizens in your kingdom, if you're not going to use this workforce that is now coming seeking you, who are you? Isn't that the, what, the, what the Messiah has come to do? Isn't that why you just healed all these people? So you'll notice that there are three times in Mark's gospel where it talks specifically about Jesus going alone to be with the Father and pray. One of them is in Mark 14, there in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the, on the night before he was crucified. He's there alone in the garden while Andrew, I mean, excuse me, while Peter, James, and John are, are a little ways off. But then, you, you, in addition to this morning's text, you come to Mark 6. And Mark 6 talks about, it, it brings us to that point where Jesus had just fed the 5,000. He's just fed the people through this, just another tremendous miracle. Meeting people's needs, and the people are after him. They want him. They want more of this bread, just like they wanted more of this healing. They want more of this bread. And so Jesus, he sends his disciples on across the sea. Y'all remember this, right? He descends them on a cross, and then he goes up on the mountain to pray. He withdraws. And so we see this consistent pattern in Jesus' life. As the crowds swell, Jesus pulls back. Because he clearly isn't worried about the applause of man. He clearly isn't worried about drawing a crowd. He isn't worried about meeting this temporary needs. He was doing something greater. He was doing something more so that he would pull back. And then, and then as he walks across the water and he gets in the boat with his disciples and he gets to the other side, now the people have run around the lake. This picture, they're like, oh, you can't get away from us, Jesus. They run all the way around the lake and they meet him there and they want more of this bread. And what does he do? He challenges them. He demands more of them. He pushes them up and he says, what is it that you're really after here? Because I filled your bellies? Because I filled your people? Now listen, he doesn't begrudge people that come to him with those needs. He honors them. He kept healing people. He, he, who else are we going to go to for healing? Who else are we going to go to for bread? Who else are we going to go to for fish but him? He honors us in coming to him, but ultimately that's not his purpose. His purpose is something, something so much more than that. You people come to me because you're hungry. That's right. You'll always be hungry. You come to me because you're sick. Guess what? Some other sickness is going to come. But these people were in so much danger of missing heaven for a loaf of bread, missing heaven for some temporary healing. And so you'll see this consistent pattern where he goes away. And so the disciples, they come to him and 
You know, the, the word that, that, that says that they looked for him, they came after him, it's typically used in Scripture to mean a negative thing, like to pursue or to persecute. But in this instance, it was just they were flabbergasted. You can almost hear the incredulity in their, in their, in their words. Everyone is looking for you. What are you doing? Everybody's looking for you, Jesus, and you're out here by yourself. Verse 38, and he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went through all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. For that is why I came out. What does he mean here? That, that's why I came out. That's why I came out to the desert. That's why I came out to Galilee. I think Luke gives us an idea when he says this, I was sent for this purpose. The purpose I left heaven and came to earth was to go and preach this gospel. You'll remember that we've talked about the words of John in John, 1 John 3, 8, when he says that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. See the connection here. How the works of the devil defeated when the gospel of Jesus Christ is uh, proclaimed. When the truth that he is the perfect son of God, that will fulfill all righteousness, that will die for sins, that will raise again in power, that any who trust and believe in him, that they too will join him in glory, that they will be forgiven of their sins, that they will be freed from the grip of slavery and sin and Satan. That as those words are proclaimed, he is destroying the works of Satan. That's why the demons revolted whenever they found him there preaching this gospel. He says, that's why I came. That's why I came was to preach this gospel. Is it because he doesn't care about the needs of men? Of course he does. Jesus wept when people died. He wept over Jerusalem at the destruction that was coming. He cares about the needs of people. But ultimately, what they need more than anything is to hear this gospel. He says, that's why I've came. I came that I could preach this gospel. That ultimately, the reason I'm here is to establish my identity. That's why I've healed you in the first place, to show you that I am who I said I am, to show you that you can trust in this gospel, to show you that salvation really is found in me. Dear friends, I, I, pray, that this, I pray that this pattern rings true for you today as you look around you at this time of incredible need. We're, we're trying to figure out as a church staff, what do we do to help the kids that, don't, that, that maybe aren't going to get school meals this week? We're trying to figure out how do we help the seniors that can't get out and shop? We're trying to figure out how do we help the mother that's home with the babies that, that, that can't get out and do the things that she needs to do? We're just trying to figure out what does love demand of us in this time, but we can never get caught up in just the thing. Listen, there, there are shipped delivery companies out there that will bring your groceries to your house, but we're more than that. We will bring your groceries to your house and we will bring with us the message of Jesus Christ so that when the world looks at us and we're serving a senior adult woman, they're seeing more than just a loaf of bread. They're seeing more than just temporary healing. They're seeing the gospel of Jesus Christ played out before their eyes. When we care for our neighbor in times of need, we're doing more than just caring for their physical needs. We're proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, what they really need, because death's going to come eventually. The question is, where do they stand before God at that moment? When death finds them, they find them in Christ, and we've got that opportunity today. But eventually it means opening our mouths. Eventually it means knowing the reason for your hope and being able to express the reason for your hope. When people look at you and they become real uncomfortable by the confidence that you find in the middle of this, it's being willing to open your mouth and say, I'm confident because my daddy owns it all. But let me tell you, I was once his enemy. But he made a way. Let me introduce you to the way. Dear friends, that's what we've been called here for. Such a time as this. Such a time as this. This occurred to me that probably every generation comes to this point. We ha every generation has this moment, has this time. Is this our moment? Is this our moment to stand up and do the hard thing? 
Is it our moment to use physical needs and sorrow and fear and panic and frustration all around us and use that as a lightning bolt, as a striking point to point people towards Jesus Christ? Is that the reason that God has brought us here? Is that the reason that God has been refining us? Is that the reason that God has been leading us through his word in the way that he's been doing it? Is it for this moment right now in this day in this way? As we love, as we give, as we care, as we serve, as we lay down our lives for the sake of the gospel, the world looks at us and says, those people might really mean this. Maybe they're not just playing church. Maybe they're not just like us. Maybe they're not just good people with a little bit of Jesus mixed in. They're going all in and they don't seem to care. They don't seem to be scared. In fact, they seem to be growing in confidence the worse things get. You don't think the world's going to take note of that? You don't think that's going to catch some attention? Dear friends, this is the time. And I stand by what I told you at the beginning of this sermon. Nothing has changed. God has been calling you to this moment. He has been building a church for this moment. He has been refining you for this moment. He has been pouring his word into your heart for this moment. He has filled you with his spirit for this moment. So let's quit talking about it and let's do it. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you that you are holy and you are good and you are righteous and you are just. And we thank you, Father, that you are for us so that all those things, everything that you are, you are for us is those that have been found in your son, Jesus Christ. Father God, you led us to exactly where we are, and you're leading us to whatever it is that comes next. And Father, we don't know what that looks like. We don't know what that means. But Father, we trust that you do. So Father, help us to mean what we say. Goodness gracious, Father, we stand in here, and we claim we don't want to be deceived. We claim that we don't want to be lukewarm. We claim that we don't want to be people just playing games and pretending to be the church. Father God, then use us. Use us now. May we have a manly faith, a strong faith, a courageous faith that drives us to the end of the earth, that causes us not to count our life as something to be grasped onto, that we are no longer our own, we are bought at a price. Well, then use us. You bought us. Use us. We plead with you, Father. And the urgency that's in my voice now, it's there because I know I'm such a coward. I know that I'll turn away at the first sight of real trouble, real struggle. Father, I don't have the courage in me nor does anybody in this room. So we pray that you just build us up now, that you strengthen us and you encourage us. Father, I pray for the people in this room that we would love on each other. Father, because the world's fixing to turn on itself. But Father, we can build each other up. We can strengthen each other. So Father, that's my prayer for your church. Just show us what that looks like. Father, be glorified now. It's your son's precious name we pray. Amen.